patrons and friends, this is your Highlands Bunker for this week. Uh, we have a very cool episode planned for you all. Um, I'll preview that in a moment, uh, but before we begin, I just want to say a few things. Uh, we had a huge week last week. Um, I was in D.C. on Wednesday agitating. Uh, I live blogged that um, for patrons only. Uh, I included some photos and some updates for patrons on what we were up to and who we were speaking with. I uh, hope you guys uh, appreciated that. We also added a handful of new patrons as well, so that's very dope. Um, thank you, everybody, who uh, has signed up over the last week. Uh, last Thursday, Carl and I did our first remote recording at the Delaware Democratic Black Caucus Debate Watch Party at Chelsea Tavern. Uh, we got comment and reaction from the host, Kobe Owens, newly minted council member Chris Johnson, Delaware Women for Inclusion Chair Deb Silverman, activist Josh Whitaker, and a random Trump supporter who uh, wandered downstairs called John. Uh, but I think um, you'll appreciate that. We had actually a mildly interesting conversation. Um, so we'll have uh, highlights of that whole night for you uh, at some point within the next couple of weeks. Um, tonight, uh, we've arranged something extremely special uh, by Skype. We're going to have an academic um, who is a PhD candidate from the City University of New York. Uh, he uh, wrote a book called Capital City, the Gentr uh, Gentrification and the Real Estate State. Uh, Samuel Stein is his name. And then in studio, uh, we're going to have activist and chair of the Coalition to Dismantle the New Jim Crow, uh, Cheyenne Miller. So we're going to uh, basically do sort of a spin through uh, Sam's book, and then we're going to talk about some of the gentrification and real estate issues uh, here in the city and in the state. Um, hopefully we'll have a nice conversation about the blight bill um, with Cheyenne um, and with Sam. So look, we added a bunch of new patrons last week. Let's keep that momentum going. Um, I've been telling everybody we're doing better work than WDEL. I think that's true. Um, so uh, we're on Twitter at Highlands Bunker. We're on Patreon at patreon.com backslash the Highlands Bunker. We're on iTunes. If you search Apple Podcast, the Highlands Bunker, uh, you, can, you can pound the, uh, the button to subscribe. And uh, we're going to keep doing this. We got a, we got a big fall planned. Uh, we have another national guest. We have some elected people that are going to be coming in. We're going to have some fun stuff. So we're gonna, we're just going to keep doing it and doing it. Um, so you know, consider patronage. Left is best, and uh, enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, so uh, we're here in the Highlands Bunker. Uh, we have a great show uh, for you tonight on the line. Uh, we have Samuel Stein. Uh, he's a PhD candidate at the City University of New York. Uh, he's a teacher at Hunter College, and he's the author of the new book, Capital City, uh, Gentrification and the Real Estate State. Uh, Sam, thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to come on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I'll just make a slight correction. Uh, I'm not teaching at Hunter this year. I'm working on my dissertation. Uh, oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you. Um, we also have uh, in the studio uh, Cheyenne Miller, who is an activist here um, in Wilmington and also the, uh, the, the board chairperson of the Coalition to Dismantle the New Jim Crow. So thanks for coming on, Cheyenne. Thanks. So um, before we get into sort of the, the, 
the, the, the part of the book that I want to sort of explore in detail, which is sort of the political aspect and the, the conflict of political interests maybe in the last hundred years and especially in the last 20 years, I was hoping you could just give um, sort of a little background uh, about the history of urban planning um, and uh, some of the ways it's been used sort of in the past before it became sort of an official sort of uh, city uh, function. Yeah, I mean, planning is something that goes far back, um, back as far as human settlement. There, there's always been planning, um, whether that was planning out um, migration patterns and planning is, uh, is really as old as human settlement. And in fact, many of the features we have of our cities today are built upon earlier forms of now from New York City. Several of the main corridors in New York, like the famous Broadway, were first indigenous trails. So this is a uh, practice that, that has been going on for a very, very long time. Um, but as uh, states start to arise, as um, capitalist enterprise starts to develop, planning on takes a much more particular function in terms of infrastructure and um, policing and education. Everything else that has to go into a capitalist system is taken care of. And so you have a couple different strains of planning that really have always been there. And one is a reformist strand, which tries to make the system run as smooth as possible. And the other is a radical strand, which tries to undo the system as it exists and plan something entirely different. And those two have really always existed in attention. Planning becomes a, a formal uh, profession, you know, it goes from a practice to a uh, to a profession in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and um, at that point, you have again those competing strengths. You have planners that are interested in uh, making sure that uh, industry can run smoothly and that property values go up, and you have planners that are trying to envision a better world, a world in which. Um, our cities can function ecologically and people have affordable housing and cooperative uh, housing and working arrangements, trying to unmake some uh, gender division of labor in the way that we build our cities. So all that stuff has been going on um, for over 100 years. And then it develops from there to, to all sorts of different forms that really... Um, have to do with the development of the state in the United States and the development of uh, the capitalist economy and all the changes that go on. And so you have these different kind of planning schools that take over. Um, famous ones include City Beautiful, which was a movement to um, kind of build out wide boulevards that stretch through our downtowns and put up magnificent architecture on the sides. And a lot of that is really beautiful public space that we cherish. But a lot of the purpose of it was to state values uh, in those downtown areas. Um, later on, we had a, a movement called City Practical, which was all about making city planning um, fulfill all the practical things that needed to be done in cities. We'll get into more the rules about what can be built where. Um, later on, we have rational, comprehensive planning, which is kind of a data-driven mid-century planning method uh, that claimed to be value-neutral, but of course was not, and saw a lot of much larger-scale planning than we had ever seen before. Some of that for the social good, 
including housing, for example, uh, and expansions of public transit. A lot of it not at all for the public good, including mass displacements of um, especially African-American inner city folks um, and the entire system right through the middle of our cities. Uh, then there's a reaction against that, and there's a leftist movement of advocacy planning that's trying to bring the community back into planning, and a right-wing vision that says, shrink the state again, uh, all these planners have gone too far. And then ultimately we get to the kind of neoliberal planning we're used to, um, which is a mix of austerity, while at the same time inviting more and more opportunities for um, private development and private profiteering off of the common project that is our cities. Yeah, I would love to, to sort of focus on that too because you, you make a, an interesting point in the book about the parallel between what a planner does and really what uh, what a wealth manager does. And you, you sort of look at um, the commodification of space and the commodification of housing and sort of how our, our capitalist structure um, focuses on those things as a priority and, and perhaps uh, then uh, allows sort of the, the cycle of capital to run through a lot of these neighborhoods. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I make the, the point about wealth managers in, in the introduction to the book, and that's, that's a provocative uh, question that I'm asking. But what I'm saying is um, cities have become one of the predominant growth strategies for capital. Um, and I lay out a lot of uh, the numbers behind this, but at this point, global real estate is worth $217 trillion with a T, which is uh, 36 times the value of all the gold that's ever been mined anywhere. So this is an incredibly uh, dense concentration of capital, and it represents 60% of the world's hard assets. Uh, so 60% of what anyone is invested in that's an actual tangible thing is real estate. And it's not just real estate in general, it's urban real estate and it's specifically housing. And so all of our housing is caught up in a global financial network that's premised on profit, just like any capitalist enterprise. And so if our cities are supposed to be not just the home of capitalist enterprises, which is the way it sort of worked before, but a capitalist enterprise in and of itself, then urban planners uh, who in the past have been tasked with, on the one hand, promoting social welfare, and on the other hand, promoting private accumulation are really tipped in that direction of accumulation. And that's when I think that um, they become a form of wealth managers. And it's not always intentional. Um, planners often get into that job because they want to do better than what the market is doing. They want to have more control over uh, the processes as they unfold in our cities. Um, vast majority of them, I think, would consider themselves at least liberal, and many of them are leftists. But it's hard to do anything in a planning capacity in cities these days if it's not premised on raising property values. And so we get caught in this trap where any good that we want has to be paired with changes that uh, are good for the real estate industry. And what's good for the real estate industry is often not so good for the rest of us if we're renters or if we're heavily indebted mortgage holders. So um, this, is, this is a problem for all of us uh, in cities, and it's a real, I think, existential crisis 
for planners and those who believe in the potential good of planning in our cities. Yeah, you, you point out uh, sort of an, an early contradiction or, or a, uh, an early in, uh, uh, example of two sort of competing interests in the cities that um, sort of we don't we don't sort of see as much anymore, but between the industrial sort of manufacturing interest and the real estate capital interest. Um, one, obviously, looking to sort of control rents. Um, so workers can live near uh, industry. Uh, uh, one sort of looking to expand rents and 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 you know make money off of uh, you know rentier sort of situations and maybe more open to other environmental standards and other zoning sort of situations. Um, but that's sort of gone by the wayside as an industry sort of has has moved out of more uh, dense sort of urban areas. Um, but I, I am interested in that dynamic and uh, and how it worked and how uh, the cycle. Sort of as it, as that cycled out, with the next thing sort of backfilled into that, right? And and you gave a really good summary of um, how it was, and I should say that 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 kind of framing comes from um, a book called Planning the Capitalist City by Richard Fogelsong, which I recommend for any listeners who want to learn more about um, urban planning in America from the colonial period up to the 1920s. And so, as you said, he, he sets out this model where um, the planner is kind of a mediator between competing capitalist interests on the one hand and the interest of the working class on the other. And um, it was kind of a dynamic process because capital wasn't uh, quite so unified and had these competing interests. And, and the examples you gave are, are spot on. Um, Industrial capital tended to want land and housing costs to be lower. Real estate capital tended to want them to be higher. Uh, industrial capital tended to be against environmental regulation. Real estate tended to be for it. Uh, and of course, the working class had its own demands around housing, environment, and more. And so it was up to planners to navigate what Fogelson called the, the property contradiction. Um, these capitalists wanted things from the state. Um, they were programs of uh, welfare to ensure that their workforce stayed alive for another generation. Um, so they wanted those things from the state, but they also put kind of tight limits on how far the state could go um, by always claiming their private property rights. And so there was that contradiction there. Um, then there was another contradiction as planners tried to resolve that, uh, which Fogelson called the capitalist democracy contradiction. And what that means is um, the planner had to ensure that um, the capitalists, the real estate interests, and the, the industrialists remained uh, profitable, and that, in fact, the state aided in making them uh, uh, more profitable, but that the system had to be open enough that it had popular legitimacy, because this is still a representative democracy, and so people vote. And so people want to believe or, or be included uh, in their planning systems and have a say in it. But uh, the interests of capital ensure that they can only go, that participation can only go so far. So people are included in a system that has hard boundaries. Um, you can't push beyond the point at which uh, city government, urban planners are making uh, capitalist enterprise unprofitable, rather that's whether that's in the real estate industry or uh, in manufacturing. 
And so that's another contradiction. They, they created these systems that um, invited the participation of residents, but put real limits on what they could do. And so what I'm that's that's a summary of how things operated for a very long time. And then the big break that I see is what we usually call deindustrialization, which really is much more a geographical restructuring of the uh the, the place of industry in our cities and in the world economy. So, of course, the, the world is more industrial than ever, but less and less of it happens in downtown Wilmington or uh, downtown Manhattan. Uh, it was pushed first to the suburbs, then to the U.S. South, uh, and then beyond uh, into international market. And so once that happens, now real estate kind of takes over. So let me just cut in uh, because we're we're right at that spot where sort of um, the industry is is as you said moving out of the cities to the suburbs to the American South and then you know globally and it, it creates uh, a vacuum where really the only interest in that dichotomy that we were discussing is real estate capital and I assume that the cycle is sort of going to start flowing into what we call gentrification uh, and so I am interested in that part of the cycle and I like I said you were just breaking up so I wanted to see if it will clear up and then you can kind of get into that next phase okay cool um, so yeah so with industry uh, less of a major voice in cities real estate kind of filled the vacuum and starts making demands on the state really only to raise land and property values so there's no more competition within the capitalist class over what the state should do and that I think is when you start to see gentrification happening um, and it's not just because the planners decided that it would be, it's because of these vacuums. It's because there was a political vacuum that the real estate industry could expand into. There was an economic vacuum with a lot of jobs leaving. There was a lot of space in our cities that used to be taken up by manufacturing that was now open up for more uses and more profitable uses. And in a lot of cases, that became high-end real estate. And so for me, that's a, a crucial element in the gentrification story that maybe hasn't been told quite as much as it should in the past. Yeah, so we, so um, sort of talking about how um, the, the vacuum was filled with real estate investment sort of banking interests, not, not much industrial sort of pushback. So we really had a, and I guess this was the the seminal moment or or uh, gap of time where there you would consider the rise of sort of the real estate state because there was no sort of uh, pressure in the other direction. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's not that there's never another pressure in the other direction. It's that there it's not powerful enough. Um, you know, usually the the pressure in the other direction comes from us, comes from organized working people, um, but it's it's quite difficult to go up against global real estate and finance um, without other powerful allies on our side. And I think this, the interests of the state were realigned to um, do the kind of urban planning that the real estate industry needed uh, to develop. And that included, uh, especially in the case of Wilmington, expanding the finance industry. Um, and, you know, people fought back and there are important victories that were achieved. But uh, it's, it's quite a difficult um, proposition to, to take on global real estate in one city. Yeah, we're finding it very difficult here. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, 
You know, before we get to um, some of the solutions and some of the things that you prescribe as, and I think you mentioned a couple of them that, you know, sort of we need to organize and become the the alternative pressure um, to to sort of the the, the rents and and and, uh, and the gentrification that we see. Um, but you know, we don't talk very much uh, in here about national politics or or Trump specifically. But you do use Trump uh, and the Trump family in the book to um, to sort of illustrate something important that I don't think a lot of people think about, and that is the way that the real estate state or folks that make money off of rent. Um, sort of utilize the public infrastructure and utilize the public commons like railroads, like uh, subway uh, stops and things um, to, to, uh, to, to get the benefit and be able to raise their rent. So they're actually relying upon uh, sort of the public good. And I found that part very interesting. And maybe you could uh, sort of give us some highlights about that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, from most of uh, of the book, I was looking at the situation from the planner's perspective and the pressures on planners and then what planners do in response. Um, and then it was inauguration day uh, and, and Trump was coming into office. And I had done a little bit of research on Donald Trump and his father uh, and, and where their wealth had come from. But it really struck me that that family is a pretty perfect example of the flip side of everything I had been writing, uh, that it's the private side of planning history in the sense of this family, three generations, that took advantage of everything that planners were doing uh, in order to build their own personal um, generational wealth. And so I trace back uh, not just Donald Trump and not just his father, Fred Trump, but his father's father, Friedrich Trump, uh, who immigrated to the United States in the late 19th century, and showed how each of them had built a real estate industry based on, um, as you said, public benefits, public infrastructure, public spending, um, public tax breaks, all of all of the ways that uh, the state was operating those different times. And they're quite different times. The early 20th century urban planning is very different than mid 20th century, which is very different than late 20th century. And so each of them sort of changed their business model to match what was going on. Uh, but there are some through lines, which include, um, as we said, making a lot of money off of public investment, convincing politicians to change their plans to meet the family's needs, um, a deep level of racism and taking advantage of the structural racism of the U.S. land and real estate economy, um, and also a sort of cronyism of making sure that their friends are always covered and failing upward, you know, constantly uh, losing but using either bankruptcy law or other ways to uh, make money off of what would wipe out other people's wealth. So it's an interesting more than a century long story of uh, who has benefited from the development of urban planning as it's proceeded in the United States. Yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, to uh, read one small excerpt because I highlighted it, and we have a another, and, and this is probably not um, necessarily unique to Wilmington, um, but 
you, you, you write here about uh, the so-called urban renewal, and you say it was rational planners who enacted so-called urban renewal plans in cities across the country, which displaced hundreds of thousands of people by demolishing longstanding working class and industrial neighborhoods and replacing them with high rises, uh, excuse me, highways and high rise residential uh and office towers. Uh, it's interesting here in Wilmington that um, in the fifties, during the Eisenhower administration, when there was a huge push for the you know the the uh, the highways and all of the super highways, um, that in Wilmington, what they decided to do was just demolish and and cut it through the center of the city. Um, so there was a neighborhood uh, that was completely destroyed. Uh, and there was a lot of manufacturing. Actually, we just started getting, uh, through gentrification, obviously, some brew pubs and, and new breweries in the city. But the last industrial breweries actually closed in the 40s or post-war because they just dug a huge trench through the middle of the city uh, to build uh, you know, a superhighway. Uh, through there and it was it was very interesting and when I when I read that I, I realized yeah this is probably not a not a unique sort of situation for us no it's not unique and um, you know there there's a book about um, New York City's experience with urban uh, renewal called the power broker which probably a lot of people are familiar with by the historian Robert Caro uh, it's an excellent thousand pages and it really highlights the the role of one guy, Robert uh, Moses. And the problem with that is that all cities went through this process at more or less the same time. And so in some ways, there was a Robert Moses in each city who ensured that this happened. Uh, but also there was something bigger structural going on that encouraged that scale of planning, that scale of displacement, and that scale of reinvestment. Um, and the, it has to do with the, the switch to auto culture. It has to do with uh, clearing the industry out of cities to create space for residential uses and who owned the land and who could make money off of the particular siting of these projects. It had to do with driving, especially African-Americans, out of the central city and creating opportunities for new investment. Um, and it's the problem with with this was not that it was big scale planning and it was not that it tore down old buildings all of that might be fine except that what was built up was largely not for the people who were displaced um, and so sometimes we get caught up in the sort of romanticism of preservation which is fine where it's appropriate but um, there were a lot of buildings that were pretty terrible and needed to be torn down. But then what's built up was only for a small percentage of those displaced. And instead, you had the dispersal of not just individuals, but families and communities. Um, and the result is what um, the psychiatrist Mindy Fullylove calls root shock. When you uh, pick up a plant and sort of toss it elsewhere and try to replant it and the, the roots can't quite catch hold anymore because they're, they were caught up in a dense network. Um, that's what happened to human beings who were displaced by urban renewal. Um, and that created all sorts of uh, opportunities for reinvestment in our city's downtown course. Yeah, I had never heard that uh, phrase before, but it makes a lot of sense. It's actually very uh, uh, illustrative, I think. Um, I want to uh, bring in Cheyenne. Uh, because um, as we start to talk about sort of unmasking the real estate state and some of the things that we need to do to continue to apply pressure against sort of the the cycling back in of, of real estate capital, 
um, we have specifically in the city um, a, a, a blight bill that's being considered by our city council, which um, ostensibly will create a system where there is more sort of punitive measures on um, landlords and landowners for uh, blighted properties, for renters for who, whose properties are not, you know, uh, adequate for them um, to stay in and, and things like that and, 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 and nuisance properties. Um, but what it seems like to activists here is a way to regressively sort of penalize and and lean sort of smaller people out of the out of their homes and transfer and sort of cycle that out of the neighborhood uh, and cycle those benefits back to you know the ownership of those properties back to sort of private real estate interests or sort of public private. Um, schemes that are set up to get sort of tax tax breaks and things like that. So it's it's something that um, is uh, something that we're sort of fighting right now. Uh, and I, uh, like Cheyenne, I don't know if you have some um, comment on some of the specifics and and some of the folks that you've talked to with um, their sort of concerns about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to clarify uh, the. The big thing that we've been talking about around this blight bill, it's been happening for about two years now in the city. Um, right now it's called Ordinance 19026. Um, and this bill has changed over the last two years due to a lot of uh, community feedback, a community outrage at what the bill could be doing. So at one point, um, and this isn't too long ago, maybe around, I wanna say in May of this year actually, um, the bill actually allowed for there to be fines placed on um, owner-occupied homes. So these are the homeowners that live in their home, not like a landlord, and renters for fines to go to them if they were having a code violation. And we're talking about code violations. These could be um, anything from chip paint on the outside of your house, some bricks sticking out, to um, mold in your house and, and other safety issues. Um, and these fines were going to be applied in a way that honestly would have hurt people who didn't have the financial means. When people heard about this, obviously a lot of people were outraged and were like, the city can't do this. And, and the bill has made some changes um, over, over the last two years and over the last year specifically. And in May, they kind of shifted the bill around a little bit more. Now it's a 140-page bill with a lot of versions of it. Um, and it, it, it is one of those bills where no normal person would sit down and read it. But essentially, I really want to give an idea of what this bill can do to the city um, and what the intention of it really was. So like if you talk to the city, they'll likely tell you, um, and when I say the city, I'm talking about city council, some city council members, um, the sponsor of the bill, Bud Friel, um, and maybe Mayor uh, Perzicki. If you talk to them, they'll really talk about the intention around this bill is laudable, right? Everyone would be excited and happy to hear about it because no one wants to live around um, blighted, vacant buildings that have people running in and out of them that pose safety risk to people. And it just makes your neighborhood not look great. Um, and it also makes it so that essentially some of us who own homes have to deal with uh, lowered property values. These are all things that most people agree with. Same thing for 
those landlords that aren't taking care of their properties, landlords that are letting renters live in squalor, those are all issues that we all can agree upon. The approach that the city is taking to addressing these, however, um, the impact may not necessarily match what they say their intention is, which is essentially to punish bad landlords and to make sure that blighted vacant properties are um, being handled in a way so that the city can essentially remove what would be a typical process. So typically, if you're in a blighted home or if you, excuse me, if your home has some code violations on it, or if you have a vacant home, there's a process in place that before the city can find you, they have to take you to court, essentially. And that fine allows for you, the process allows for you to um, fight that fine in court, explain how you're going to remediate whatever the problem is that they're getting you for. And they want to remove that process right now. So they call it um, basically decriminalizing that process. Um, and what happens is because you no longer have an opportunity as a homeowner, as a, land a landlord to go and defend yourself in court, there is no process in place now should they decide to place a fine on you. Well, what does it matter? It's a just $250 fine, right? doesn't really matter. In some cases, it can be 250. In some cases, it can be more. Well, 250 for um, a poor person is a lot of money. I uh, probably don't have to say that to everyone who's listening here, but I, I do want to say that out loud, that $250 can be a lot of money. Second, the opportunity that you get in a court to explain what it, the problem is, that you can't fix a $500 um, problem in your home, a $500 code violation in 30 days, because it could take you 30 days just to get a hold of a contractor, let alone 30 days to come up with the money. That is one of the things that you need, a process to be able to defend yourself. So the thing I really um, want to point out is that essentially what this bill does is it makes it easier for the state to take properties and put them up for sheriff sale. Um, and the last thing we want is <laughs> is for the state, I mean, excuse me, for the city to be able to continue to take properties and put them up for sheriff sale for properties that are blatant, blatant, blighted, vacant, all those things we understand are issues. But there has to be a different way of approaching this because the people who are going to be mostly impacted by some of these seizures will very likely be people who are poor, people who are black, people who are brown. Yeah, and I know Sam, you you've um, discussed, I read in the book, and I've seen um, you speak in other um, contexts about the way that zoning, up zoning, and down zoning, and not only just that, but different rules uh, about different administrative rules and um, the enforcement of those rules, how that can be levers just to use um, to make a, to, to do a lot of things that um, that there are interests that need to be done. Sure. Um, and I just want to say real quick that there's also a pretty bad history in this country with the word blight and that it's been it's often had the loosest of definitions. Um, and again, Mindy Foley loved the the uh, psychiatrist who used the term root shock. I think her definition of blight is that's yours and I want that or something like that. Like it, it's been so um, loosely used as to claim any kind of property that um either uh, the state wants to see this remnant domain or quite often private interests want to buy up, but they don't want to, they can't buy directly. And so they need the state as an intermediary. So there's a long history with that. Now in terms of zoning and other kinds of regulations, um, yeah, we're in this time when again, so much money is invested in real estate that we might want to have neutral or technical discussions about density and zoning 
uh, and kind of the ideal build form. But there's always somebody making a lot of money off of any kind of change that we make. And we have to be quite aware of that. Um, and until we make that not the case by uh, moving toward decommodifying housing and decommodifying land um, and moving toward alternative forms of ownership, any kind of change we make uh, is going to be filtered through that lens. And so I talk at one point in the book about the way uh, either upzoning or downzoning can be used to elevate property values. So if you upzone an area, you're increasing the development capacity there, which is really important in some parts of this country. There are parts of this country that are exclusionarily zoned so that only uh, people who can afford, you know, an, a few acres um, can live in an area, which is a way of uh, segregating by default and creating a, uh, a very expensive property market. Um, so there are areas that, that need that kind of treatment, but often what we see is upzoning in the areas of cities that are currently affordable to working class people. And what that tends to do is create opportunities uh, for developers where um, if you used to be able to build uh, three stories, let's say, and now you can build 30, um, whoever owned that land, now the value of it is worth 10 times as much. And so just with legal action, uh, we have created a windfall profit for the landowner who can sell to a developer who will buy it for a bunch of money and then put up a property on there uh, that needs to pay back all that debt that they went into to buy it. And so that tends to be very expensive property. Um, and so that's a, a way in which um, working class people can be displaced um, through these zoning mechanisms. You can also have situations where you have a down zoning or reducing the development capacity, which can also increase property values. So if you used to be able to build five stories in an area and we down zone and now you can only build two stories, all the five story properties in that area are going to be worth a whole lot of money because if they were torn down and replaced, they'd have to be replaced with something smaller. And so you're locking in place uh, the old built form, which becomes uh, very valuable and then tends to be flipped multiple times and investors make a lot of money off of it. So opposite mechanisms, upzoning and downzoning, can be done uh, in ways that reinforce the demands of the real estate industry and can be done in ways that perpetuate segregation. Um, and often we see the kind of wealthiest and whitest areas of our cities having very um, very low density zoning to lock in those property values. And then you see up zonings in the areas uh, of the city that are working class, majority of people of color, where people won't be able to afford the new housing. And so uh, you see class exploitation on, on both sides. Yeah. So Cheyenne, what... Um what sort of um, tactics and strategy have you been using to sort of uh, advocate um, for homeowners and folks in the neighborhoods on the blight bill? Um, how's it been going? Do you have anything else planned? Um, yeah. Sort of give us the goods because we want to get the word out. Yeah. So um, the biggest advocacy that's been happening around 19026 has been really some door knocking and just getting people who live in the city, people who live in any part of the city aware of the fact that this is happening. So everyone always thinks, well, I'm not a homeowner. It shouldn't matter to me. Um, 
the, the problem is this actually has an impact on renters. Part of the bill actually um, talks about increasing fees for landlords, which we are very, very sure. I have sat in meetings with landlords um, and heard them say that they would pass those fees down into the cost of, of, of into the renter's cost, meaning that your rent would go up if you're a renter. Um, there are issues around if you think that, oh, well, I'm a homeowner. Well, you're a homeowner and one day you might decide that you want to buy a second property. And should anything happen where you have any damage to that property and you need that time to be able to fix it up, you might not get it because this bill has passed. Um, and there are plenty of landlords that work and live in the city that are good landlords um, that live in the city and own a home somewhere in their neighborhood or in another neighborhood, maybe two or three blocks over. Um, and these landlords would also be impacted. So what we've been doing is trying to get everybody to understand that awareness of this issue is important. Um, you're not excluded just because you're a renter, um, despite the fact that the city has been um, not doing a great job of putting the word out there about what the impact of this is. We want to make sure that it does get out and that it's understood from all uh, perspectives, whatever your housing situation is, that this is happening and it has an impact on you. Some of the other things we've done is we've had um, a housing event. And so what we did was we wanted to give an opportunity for people to see what the options were right now that city council was putting forth in terms of 19026 as an ordinance and in terms of the healthy um, sub the healthy community subcommittee and that's a subcommittee that was um, authorized through the urban development public it's like urban development committee within city council um, that is essentially hoping to pull together more stakeholders so we're talking about housing housing advocates we're talking about community advocates like myself renters landlords and homeowners into the same space so we can talk about well how are we really going to address the issue of blade blighted properties, vacant properties of um, housing conditions in the city in a way that gives a bigger voice to the communities that don't often get to have a voice. Um, and so we were able to have different members of city council, both for and against the bill, uh, able to show up and, and talk through it. And, and that was a really great event because we had some unexpected guests that we had invited that said they weren't going to come and did come, like Bud Friel. Um, we had Michelle Harley show up as well. We didn't know that she was coming at all. Um, and we had some even city council members sitting in the audience that we have appreciation for. And so it, it was a big deal because it allowed for us to get a chance for um, the voice of the community also to be heard. A lot of that conversation had a chance for members that actually live in the community to stand up and voice what were their concerns, what do they want to see addressed by the bills, what do they want to see addressed by 19026, what edits do they want to see to the bills, and to be able to sort of get an idea of what the positions were of city council members. The other thing that we've been doing is um, a lot of flyering and Facebook posting, and really what we've been trying to get people to do is come out and do that with us. So share what we've put on Facebook. Facebook through the Wilmington, um, excuse me, the Wilmington Neighborhoods Coalition through Coalition to Dismantle the New Jim Crow, sharing what we put out in terms of flyers, in terms of our requests for amendments um, to the bill. So the bill can be at least a little bit less harmful in terms of its impact. And to talk a little bit about those amendments, you mind, um, if I can talk a little bit about those amendments, uh, really, you know, I've sat in four, three of the four of the mayor's um, 
community conversations that he put up about this bill. Um, he held those across the city, and I was able to attend about three out of four of those. And essentially the conversation, in my opinion, went as follows. Um, the city has a lot of ugly, blighted properties. Um, renters are not always treated well, and renters are also the culprits in some cases. Um, and we want to get bad landlords. And the process that we have in place right now is not working to help us get bad landlords. We need to decriminalize this process so that we're essentially allowed to um, forego any form of independent oversight, apply these fines, make them into first priority liens so that we can take these homes faster, so that we can get them off the uh, vacant property list and get them off of uh, any other code violation list or anything like that. And when I sat in these meetings, I asked three times to the mayor, hey, like, will you take the time to listen to the community about the concerns they have to this bill and advocate with us to make some amendments to this bill? And every single time I asked if he would at least listen and help us to work together to make amendments to the bill, he either said no or he said, oh, that's not my job. I'm not uh, I'm not the bill writer. Um, I I was very surprised that I wasn't able to get kind of like, of course, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with you and the sponsor and discuss it. Um, but at the same time, I also know that, you know, sort of what Sam was alluding to was like, I am not rich and I am not a banker in the city or a real estate person in the city. And so why would you sit down with someone like me to discuss something that's going to have a huge impact on almost everyone in the city? And so my thing was i felt like that was a a big no and so i reached out instead um with my colleagues i reached out to bud friel who's the sponsor of the bill and um bud seemed a little bit more open to hearings about some of these amendments and i'm going to sit down with the mayor later and sit down with bud hopefully at some point and be able to talk more about some of the amendments we're asking but essentially generally what we're asking for with these amendments is we want to see a better addressing of how we're going to have a process in place so that people have the ability to contest these fines before they become first priority liens. We want to make sure that there is a lot more community input um, when it comes to actually how we're talking about how we're going to make our cities safer, how we're going to make our cities cleaner. Right now, the way this bill has been written has been written um, very exclusively. It's been written specifically with uh, the interest in mind that are not poor, that are not black, that are not underrepresented. Um, typically in these conversations. And so it, it, it just becomes very difficult for us to believe that the intentions of this bill are good when they're when they're not written with us. Um, we want to make sure that, you know, if L&I is going to go around actually uh, sticking fines on people, that they're going to do it fairly, right? L&I should probably be focusing on, on landlords that really are hurting our community, landlords that really are um, basically making it so that renters aren't do going to be able to live in great conditions and healthy conditions. We right now aren't able to collect on, on fees that we have currently, fees that we've been placing in place currently, and they'll say that's because of the the long process it takes in terms of the court, court process. But I'd say, well, if if I get due process before you come and give me a fine or a fee, 
um, before you have the ability to take my home, it's probably uh, fair for me to get to process during any of this. And so while it's understood that there needs to be an improvement in the way that we're addressing um, issues with landlords, issues with housing, issues with, with vacants, we also need to respect the fact that um, we can't do it through this very punitive process that all it wants to do is provide more fines, provide more fees. And so if you're out there and you're willing to talk to anyone that's from city council, specifically if you're willing to talk to Bud Friel, what we're asking is that take into consideration some of our amendments. Take into consideration all of the amendments that we're putting out there. We want to make sure that that this bill is going to have a better impact on the city than it will have if it's passed as is. And if those amendments can't be passed, then don't pass this bill. Very simply put, do not pass the bill um, because this bill is going to do a lot more harm than good. Sam, uh, one last question for you. This brings up some of the tactics and some of the strategies that are being used to sort of um, lobby and, and counterbalance this. What other, what sort of other trends and, and tactics um, have you identified? And you talk about some in the book, um, politically and otherwise, uh, that some folks are using, like uh, rent control, for example, and other uh, sort of other organi organizing um, that people have been using, um, similar to what Cheyenne is discussing, to sort of fight back against some of this stuff. Yeah, it's it's important that. Um you know, I, I'm, I'm showing just how big the problem is, but not to then throw up our hands and say it's too big to do anything about. I really do think we can change this. Um, and part of my argument is tenants in this uh, political economy are, they, we seem to be weak, and yet actually collectively we'd be incredibly powerful. Um, we are weak as individual renters, but taken together, um, we have the power to throw a wrench into a system that's premised on our rents going up and up and up, and eventually um, us being pushed out of our, our very homes, and we can put a stop to it through organizing. And so in at the end of the book, in the final uh, major chapter, I talk about policies that can be enacted right now. I talk about principles that we can look to uh, to imagine a better future. And I talk about the kind of politics it takes to push us in that direction. You mentioned rent control. There's a real resurgence of rent control organizing happening all over the country, which is fantastic. Um, we've seen some state-level victories, uh, most recently in California. In New York, where I live, we had a major overhaul of our rent laws, um, which will close a lot of the loopholes that were inserted into them over the years and also help expand it uh, through more parts of the state. And that's really important because it takes away the landlord's power to arbitrarily raise your rent because of something else that's happening, right? So uh, because they simply want more money is the most common reason, but also because some sort of public improvement has been made. And so if we want to demand of our planners, for example, that they increase mass transit, that they green our streets, that they um, increase, in, improve our, our schools and our sanitation, all those public infrastructures, we don't want our rents to go up as a result of all that. We don't want to have to trade off healthy life for uh, expensive living. And so rent control can help put a stop to that. So rent control is important. We need to reinvest in our public housing. Um, the HUD budget has been suffering for decades. It was really slashed under Reagan and then never recovered. Um, and as a result, we many cities have simply torn down their public housing. And those that still have it, like New York, uh, the public housing is suffering. And instead, this should be uh, fully funded. 
And it's it's not the buildings that are the problem. It's not the design that's the problem, though both could be improved on. Uh, it's simply that we don't pay for it. And we give huge, huge, huge amounts of subsidy to homeowners, including wealthy homeowners, um, and yet very little for public housing. So reinvesting in public housing is major. And the final that I'll mention is changing our tax code uh, so that we punish absentee landlords and owners of warehouse vacant property um, and those who are speculating off of land and housing um, and use that value then to reinvest in public housing and to subsidize uh, those who can't afford the rents in our cities um, and to really flip our priorities. So there's much more in the book, but there's, there's a ton that can be done. We just need to harness our collective power in order to get there. Samuel Stein, uh, the book is Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State. Uh, it's a very enlightening book. Buy the book. Uh, Cheyenne Miller of uh, the Coalition to Dismantle the New Jim Crow. I have a feeling we're going to be talking again very soon about this bill and, and other uh, housing issues. Um, Sam and uh, Cheyenne, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Can I add one more thing? You, I, sure thing. You definitely can add one more thing. One more thing. Um, I want to underscore the uh, points that were made around organizing and to underscore a little bit about the the process that Wilmington has been going through. So like Wilmington, Delaware, the biggest city in the state, and, and we are a changing city. Um, recently, we've had Rodney Square removed as a bus hub which makes absolutely no sense for a city that was complaining about traffic issues. Um, we have also had Rodney Square being reinvested um, with $8 million into a park. Around Rodney Square, not more than two blocks away, there were luxury apartments just put in. Um, and these luxury apartments were put in around the same time that we were having conversations about issues of homelessness in the city. Um, if you walk around the corner of those luxury apartments, you can literally see men and women sleeping on on um, the ground in front of banks. And so it's this point to say that, like, when we talk about housing in the city, we're not just talking about a blight bill that's going to come up and, and eventually will uh, either pass or not pass and then we'll move on with their lives. We're talking about in general, the way that the city is treating all of its residents and who has a say in what we do. And um, the way that the city has been currently going about treating our residents has been in a way that allows for essentially the decisions to be made based off of what business wants, decisions to be made based off of what people who um, don't always live in the city, don't always have the impact of of harsh policing, don't have to deal with the impact of terrible uh, of financial situations and economic dis uh, disasters like the recession, um, the way that we do uh, as people that live on the ground, as people that are, are working class people. And so when we know that our voices are not being valued when city council is around, are not being valued, um, uh, in the conversation about what the city should look like in the future, we need to have a extremely visceral reaction to that. And our reaction should be to get mad and organize and to ensure that we're being involved um, with decisions that happen at the local level. And so that's my urge and call to action to people is get involved, um, get mad and, and stop allowing for the city to kind of walk all over us. You know, that's a perfect way to end a call to action. I like that. Cheyenne, thank you very much. Yep. And Sam, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.